Okay, please turn to Romans chapter 8. That may be one of our central passages today as we charge toward the center of Romans on this Operation Delta phase of the study of Romans, the epistle. Don't forget the 2018 Treasures for Children campaign. It's still ongoing, and I appreciate everyone getting behind that. I want to begin today by paying tribute to a fellow servant of Christ. And I don't know, because we didn't have midweek services, we weren't able to alert a lot of people. And I don't know how many of you knew Mike Minear personally. I don't think many of you did, but he was a quiet professional officer in the army of the Lord Jesus Christ, fellow laborer. And the shepherd, really, of the Potter's Shed in Little Hocking, Ohio, that group of about 13 faithful believers that have been meeting since 2002, before that, really, but 2002, listening to the messages from this pulpit and gathering around the name of our Savior. Mike Manier, warrior shepherd, home on November 18th, 2018. Bill Carpenter, from what I understand, did a marvelous job in his eulogy last night, in which many people gathered in a visitation of the Holy Spirit in memory of Mike. But my words today are just to honor him. Mike told Bill Carpenter, I call Bill the apostle from Little Hocking. He's the apostle. Of the potter said he travels many times three hours one way with some of the people from there three hours one way and the fellowship on the way back I understand is extraordinary usually and I always use them as an example for those who say oh it's too far anyways Mike told Bill and this really struck me that when he was 19 in his early days as a Christian he wanted to save the world and that in his last days, he saw that God had already done it. And this really does summarize the sweep of many of our lives. I had the same kind of history when I was a young believer. I said, well, it's up to me now to go out and tell the whole world and save the whole world. And viewed the same object, as Bill said, we viewed the same object now for all these years, our Lord Jesus Christ. He was always the same, but our viewpoint changed. We, God dropped lens after lens after lens until we see him now in a great, greater light. Mike and Debbie Minear hosted a DVD group that began to receive the messages taught here. And again, as I said, in 2002, and Mike became the unofficial shepherd of the group. And he and Debbie faithfully opened their home to what became by name the potter's shed a faithful and loving group of about 13 saints in little hocking ohio many of this group have visited us right here and have greatly enriched and refreshed our fellowship mike saw the lord jesus as his divine shepherd this was probably the focal point of his fellowship with the lord 
And what he didn't know, and probably had to be told, and I told him a few times, is that divine shepherd was formed in him. He faithfully sent sit reps to me to report the health of the body of the believers in Potter's Shed. They were never solicited, and we never expected that, because our fellowship is deep and profound, but informal. But he would send me what he called sit reps, reporting on the health of the body of believers in the Potter's Shed. He always did it with the discipline of an officer in the Lord's army, but with the gentleness of a shepherd in God's flock. I had very few face-to-face contacts with Mike, but our hearts and souls were knit together in mutual love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our last confab took place right out here in the seats after a message and in a fellowship. It involved both tears and laughter. I believe that he intuited then that the Lord was writing his final chapter in this world, and he anticipated departing from this life as Paul did. In fact, he said, you know, people don't really understand that I really want to go and be with him, and I understood that. But knowing also, because of the presence of Christ is incomparably better than remaining here, On the other hand, he was also very willing, like Paul was, to remain as long as God would have him stationed here. I'm profoundly moved that the God of all grace chose to receive Mike, my co-laborer in the Lord, on the day that marked the completion for me of 40 years of preaching in the Pittsburgh area. And so I'm aware now of why that morning I had a sense of somberness mixed with deep joy for on that occasion heaven became enriched with Mike's homecoming Mike Muneer who left this world having fought the good fight in its arena having helped countless people not only with spiritual but physical health he and Debbie and having served his king with distinction is now in the fullness of joy And our prayer, and I know you'll join in your heart with me, our prayerful wish, and that's the beauty about prayer. Before you even articulate it, the wish is a prayer heard by God. Our prayerful wish for Debbie, his loving wife, and all his family, and for those of the potter's shed who loved him, is this. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and great hope in grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you. And may he release a flood of happy memories in you and cause you to overflow with hope by the Holy Spirit. And I add these very few words in honor of Mike Muneer, which in turn is in honor of his Lord. And the message that Bill Carpenter brought, I understand, was quite extraordinary and phenomenal. And that also, I think, will be available. So, here's to you, Mike. See you soon. Today's message is in continuation. It's the third message on what is faith. Faith quits it. 
In a way, this answers what is Romans, where Romans begins with the key verse in Romans one seventeen. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalyptically revealed from faith to faith or from faith for faith, as it reads straight on. And we've qualified the meaning of that many times. But what is faith? We started out the first part. I intended to be one message. It became two. Faith as perception. Faith as a means of perception, a divinely gifted way of perceiving that which is otherwise invisible and inaccessible to us. The second part is faith as participation, and that will move into an apex of development, faith as Jesus Christ himself or Christ's faithful death. Faith is a name for Christ. In fact, he is Faith and Christ are used interchangeably, especially in Galatians. And while we have been not as frequently meeting, I have been meeting every day for many hours in Galatians. I've, it's funny teaching Romans while studying Galatians, but it's funny how Galatians shines light on Romans. And as the Holy Spirit constantly does, I sometimes read, just before coming to the pulpit, something that's appropriate to the message, and this is no exception. I've been reading a Galatians commentary, the best I've seen, from a man who was at the University of VU, VU, in Amsterdam. His name is Martinus de Boer, and he recently went into the presence of the Lord also. Martinus de Boer, that's small d-e, and B-O-E-R. He wrote this in one sentence. He captured so much of what I'm saying here. He said, the new age, me speaking of the age that came about with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what I call the messianic age, effectively begins for an individual. Whenever that person, quote, comes to believe in Christ, close quote, and he cites Galatians 2.16 for that, documenting that. Received his promised spirit, citing Galatians 3.14 and 3.29, and is baptized into him, cites Galatians 3.26 to 28. And so again, the new age effectively begins for an individual. That which began with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ begins for an individual effectively, when the person comes to believe in Christ. Now, this is very important. Receives the promised spirit and is baptized into Christ. Now, this brief but loaded remark goes directly to the theme today, faith as participation. We've been looking at faith as perception and paraphrasing Lonergan and I plunder his word treasury frequently, he says, faith discerns the expression of the totality of God's love. And that's true. Faith discerns or perceives or comes to understand the totality of the expression of God's love, which is better said by Paul, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ. The vertical dimensions bringing forth to our memory the vertical beam of the cross, the horizontal dimensions, the cross beam. 
So we have seen faith as a means of perception. In Romans, it says, by faith, we discern or perceive, and I think with deep appreciation, as I can see it in you, and have heard you say these things and appreciate these things, faith perceives the expression of the universal horizon of God's mercy, especially in Romans 9 through 11, just as it appreciates the expression of God's total love in Romans 5 through 8. And this is how we wrap up Romans in a way. These two three-chapter sections, 5 through 8, And 9 through 11 of Romans, these two three-chapter sections constitute the double center of this epistle, the heart of the center toward which we are pressing, and that includes in the Better Call Paul series, the heart of the center, which is also the heart of Paul's theology, and really the heart of his gospel, is Romans 8, 31 to 32. Faith, along with hope and love, constitutes what I like to call God-approved livingness, kind of like an abbreviation of Galatians, G-A-L, God-approved livingness. Faith, hope, and love, together as one, constitute God-approved livingness during this clashing juncture of the eons. The clashing juncture of the ages. Paul wrote it this way. These three abide. They are abiding. They continue. They remain. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We could say that these three theological virtues, that's what Thomas Aquinas called them, theological virtues, faith, hope, and love, remain on the flot. You remember that? We used to be taught that. And I used to teach it also. Flot, forward line of troops. The flot, forward line of troops. And that's a very important idea because that's what 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is saying. These three three remain. They remain steadfast on flot, the forward line of Christian soldiers. These remain. The greatest of these is love, it says, does not in any way diminish the value of faith. The forward line of troops means that we are in an ongoing, apocalyptic, eschatological war. In this forward militant movement, we hold up, says the scripture, above all, the shield of faith. So again, the fact that love is greatest of all does not diminish the value of faith. Because there is no love without faith, but love is the fullest development of faith and hope. Hope is not a shame because the love of God is poured out in our hearts, for example. So in this forward line of troops, there are certainly a lot of believers that are out of line and out of rank and not in this forward line of troops. And Paul addresses that in Galatians. You have so soon deserted the one who called you by the grace of Christ for another gospel. And that other gospel, unfortunately, is more popular in our era and in our time than this gospel that shows the depth and height of the love of God in Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection and the breadth and width of it in the horizon of his universal 
mercy. So in the measure that we adhere to the gospel that reveals the height, the depth, and the breadth of the love of Christ and the width, that's the measure that we're actually in rank, in line, moving forward in a militant motion in which God is the actor. And so our faith, call it our faith now, is the faith with which we were gifted. It is our participation with Christ's obedient fidelity and thus of Christ's own livingness and life. For me to live is Christ, Paul said. And the life that I now live, he said, I live by what? The faithfulness of the Son of God. I participate in Messiah's own fidelity by grace. This participation is something altogether new in this world. Abraham had a kind of faith, but it was only a very rough analogy of the faith that came into the world, Galatians 3, 23 to 25. Very important passage. You might want to hook up with it now before we even get to Galatians, if we do. The coming of Christ into this world from outside it is equated with the coming of faith into this world from outside it. Abraham's faith then only had a very rough analogy to the faith that we have in our union with Christ, as Romans 4 teaches. And so, this participation with Christ's obedient fidelity to the Father and his own livingness is something altogether new in the world because it came with Christ. And so, the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart became a new command when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved as I have loved you. And so, again, Martinus de Boer writes in his Galatians commentary, quote, faith, and that's the Greek word pistis, meaning faith, P-I-S-T-I-S, has multiple meanings, pistis, and the verb is pistuo, P-I-S-T-E-U-O, Looks like this in the Greek, P-I, no, the P is this, I-S-T-E-U-O, pistuo. That's the verb which we translate as to believe or to be faithful. Faith, he says, in this passage, speaking of Romans 1, 16 to 17, is for Paul evidently a form of sharing in God's eschatological revelation. Sharing in God's eschatological final revelation. I'll say that again. Faith, for Paul, is evidently a form of sharing in God's eschatological revelation, in God's eschatological activity and movement. Faith, then, is our participation in a divine movement, in divine activity. It is God in you, both willing and working to his own good pleasure. So I would say this finds a warrant in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it's God in you, willing and working his own good pleasure. 
DeBoer goes on to say, quote, through the gospel, a believer is taken up into this eschatological activity in order to participate in it, to become a part of it. Faith thus means for Paul that a believer can truly see and perceive this action. And I found this after I decided to talk about faith as perception. He says, he says again, faith thus means for Paul that a believer can truly see and perceive this action, this movement of God into and then in the world. The movement and presence of God are to be seen in the crucified Christ whom God has raised from the dead. Whenever we consider Jesus Christ and him crucified, the tenses there presuppose his resurrection. The crucified Christ is the one whom God raised from the dead. Our human believing, then, is not the means of our justification. Contrary to the great trend in Christian theology, Protestant Christian theology, the means of our justification is the faithfulness of Christ. And I think we've seen that clearly, and we'll see it even more clearly if we go to Galatians. Our faith we could say, is elicited or kindled. And I think even the word gifted to us is even better by the proclamation of Christ. It's the means, faith is, of our participation in the fidelity of Christ, which fidelity led him to the cross and continues in him. Christ has not stopped being faithful, but now he is faithful as the corporate Christ as us in union with him. That participation is what Paul calls the obedience of faith. And because the obedience of faith brackets the whole of this epistle, Romans 1.5, to bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations, Paul said, is the reason for his apostleship, the reason for his grace, to bring about the obedience of faith, which is a participation in Christ's own fidelity among all the nations. It is something that all the nations will participate in. The church does so as a kind of harbinger or forecast of it. The same thing in the closing in Romans sixteen twenty six that God has allowed by his eternal command this gospel to be manifested now for the obedience of faith among the nations or even by all the nations. And so our participation in Christ's fidelity is not the way that we are justified. We are, it's not the means of our justification. As we're going to see in the climax of this series, the means of our justification is the faithful death of Christ. The faithful death of Christ. Therefore, being justified by the faithful death of Christ, we are under the mandate to live by faith. Those who are the just one then applies not only to Christ First, but also to us, the just one, that is someone justified by Christ's death, shall henceforth live by faith. It doesn't say by faith you are justified. It says the justified one, justified by Messiah's faithful death, shall live by faith. That's an ethical mandate, really, to live by faith, not by the works of the law, not by human works, not by Christian works in the energy of the flesh, 
but by faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith. We live our lives in accordance with Messiah's fidelity. So believing we have or we experience in some identifiable shape and form the livingness and the life of the coming age. That's what John's gospel is about. John's gospel is about believing you have or experience the life of the coming age. It's not so much evangelistic as it is the kind of living and livingness that God offers for us. The alternative is perishing, which is to remain stuck in the present evil age under the tyranny of sin, under the fear of death, or even under the law. Paul makes some extraordinarily controversial statements in Galatians, one of which is that God was not even involved in the giving of the Sinaitic law, but that it was angels that did it in an attempt to override God's grace. Angels, by arrangement of angels in Galatians 3.19. Just thought I'd drop that bomb with a delayed fuse. I'll explain it later. I wouldn't even introduce that controversial statement unless I hadn't, until I had studied it for several months and worked it out, and it will be worked out. Even if an angel from heaven brings another gospel, one that is in accordance with the works of the law, let that angel be under a curse. And Paul said, even if I do it, or any other person, that's how much he treasured the gospel of the grace of God. So John's gospel teaches that believing, that is, with a faith that's elicited by the gospel, we experience or have eternal life means literally we experience in some identifiable shape and form the life and the livingness of the messianic age. This is what the gospel of John teaches. The alternative of perishing, as John 3.16 says, is to remain stuck in the present evil age under the tyranny of sin, spinning our wheels in nervous human energy for God. In fact, peace in Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by Messiah's faithful death, let us go on to enjoy the peace with God that it secures. Peace, in fact, by definition there in Romans 5.1 and elsewhere, the peace that we experience in believing in Romans 15.13, the last verse of Romans' main body before Paul goes into his travel plans and before he says that you're all a minister, ministry of ministers in 1514, which I say to you, he said, may you enjoy the peace in believing, joy and peace in believing, meaning that believing, not the means of our justification, is the means of enjoying the peace and the joy and the righteousness which is ours by Christ's death. So believing we experience in some way that's identifiable, the livingness of Christ. So the alternative is to remain under a curse. Those that are under the law are under a curse. We'll learn that from Galatians. In fact, peace is the messianic livingness that is in Jesus. The very definition of peace isn't just a feeling of tranquility or serenity, but it's the livingness that is in Jesus. In fact, Jesus is our peace 
according to Ephesians 2.14. Being justified by Christ's faithfulness, this is the message of Romans. Being justified by Christ's faithfulness, we live by participation with his faithfulness. This becomes explicit in Galatians 2.20 where Paul said, I was crucified with Christ. In fact, the perfect tense says, not only was I crucified with Christ, but my co-crucifixion with him goes on to have profound influence in my life now. The co-crucifixion of Christ. And I want you to understand this because my next asking of a question is going to be just what is justification? What is it? There's a debate. N.T. Wright debates with John Piper and other people debate with other people. And I don't think that the definition of justification has been given any justification yet. And I don't claim to do it either. But Paul said, I was crucified with Christ and therefore justified. That's the point he's making. I was crucified and therefore justified. And I live by the faithfulness or in the sphere of the faithfulness, or we could say in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. You see, this faith works by love and gave himself for me. And so our justification, and this is the statement I'm making, and this is the pioneering statement that I'm making and the path that I'll follow. Our justification is our instauration. That is precisely our crucifixion. The reason that we're justified by being crucified is precisely because no one living can be justified in God's sight. Psalm 143.2, a profoundly foundational text for both Romans and Galatians. 143.2, which says literally in the Septuagint, which is 142.2, All flesh will not be justified in God's sight. And so justification can't happen to you while you're alive. No living being can be justified in God's sight. So when Christ died, all died. So Christ's death is justifying. Our justification is our instauration, our co-crucifixion with Christ. Instauration is spelled I-N-S-T-A-U. R-A-T-I-O-N. It's the primary doctrine that derives from our study in Romans, and I'll be bringing it in a kind of a distilled way. The Son of God who loved me, Paul said. Notice how individual it is. It's corporate, and in fact, it's universal in Titus 2.14, but here it's individual. The Son of God who loved me, and the aorist is timeless, and loves me still. The love of by which he moved to death on a cross for me, is the same love with the same intensity of love that he still has for me. The faithfulness of Christ works by love. That means in Galatians 5, 6, it is energized by love and it operates within the dynamic state of love. That's another reason why Faith, hope, and love remain steadfast on the flot. The greatest of these is love. Not because love diminishes the value of faith or the value of hope, but because love 
constitutes the sphere or the whole state in which love works and in which hope overflows. And so the faithfulness works by love. This is the law. This is the rule by which we walk or conduct our lives or have our lives determined. It is the rule by which the Israel of God walks. Galatians 5, 6, Galatians 6, 16. And so it is energized by the love of God and it operates within the dynamic state of God's love. Remember, this year is another year of what? Being in love. In Christ Jesus, from which we can never be severed. Romans and Galatians reveals two ways of living. God sets before us two ways of living and livingness. It's kind of like what Moses did. I set before you life and death. Romans 8 will teach us in 5 and 6 and 7 to live under the impulsive desire of the flesh, which is energized under the law, is death. And to live under the determining power of the Holy Spirit of grace is both life and peace. It's an experience of life and peace. But we're only going to look at one little part of this, Romans 8. We're going to look at this in a moment. Romans and Galatians then set before us two ways of living, and these two ways of living are determined by two different powers, the spirit and the flesh. The flesh here is a, should be capitalized when we understand it, as Paul did, as an apocalyptic cosmic power. The Jewish scholars called it a desire of the flesh, an impulsive desire of the flesh that no human power is equal to except for the spirit. The spirit is willing, meaning the human spirit, the will, the will of man is willing but the flesh is weak. The human flesh is weak. In other words, the human flesh with a small f cannot combat the flesh with a big F, capital F, the apocalyptic power of the flesh. That's why Paul kind of rebukes the teacher in Romans 1.18 through 28 who keeps saying God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. When Paul says in Romans 8.5, they weren't able to, the, the carnal man is not even able to do the will of God. He, he can't. So there's, it's not an excuse for sure, but it sure reveals the grace of God in saving us. And so again, Romans and Galatians reveals these two ways, living under two determiners, the spirit of the flesh. And in other words, whether we live by the doing of works prescribed by the law or even prescribed by the New Testament, or do we live by faith, a participation in Messiah's faithfulness? The justified one shall live by faith. We live by faith to comply with the fact and the reality that we are justified by the faithfulness of Christ. Let me say that again. When we live by faith under God's command to do so, we're actually in compliance with the reality that we have been justified by Christ's faithfulness. That's what Galatians 2.16 teaches. 
So in this connection, I want to look at just a part of the center of Romans toward which we are pressing, and that's Romans 8.1. We've already seen this. Therefore, there is no condemnation, which is the flip side of saying there is justification. Therefore, there is no condemnation, that is, because there is justification to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, how did we get in Christ Jesus? Through death with him. Being baptized into him by the Spirit, Romans 6 says, we have been baptized into his death. And so it doesn't say here there's no condemnation for those who obey the law, but for those in Christ Jesus who were baptized into his death. And then it says in verse 2, for the law, Torah, or the law here, he uses a word in a very unique way, or I don't want to say very unique, (laughs) unique way. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me. Notice again the first person singular that he used all throughout Romans 7. Very individualistic here. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has liberated me from the law of sin and death, which means literally the law, Moses' law, under the control of sin, which leads to death. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, that's the dynamic of the spiritual life, has liberated me from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do. The law can't justify and the law can't give life. What the law was powerless to do because it was rendered impotent by the flesh, capital F-L-E-S-H, rendered impotent by the flesh, that cosmic inimical adverse power, the flesh. Because what the law could not do, the law under the control of sin could not do in that it was rendered impotent by the flesh, God did, God did, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, sin-controlled and sin-complicit humanity, in the likeness of a sin-controlled person, though he wasn't. And for sin, peri here means on behalf of or reference to sin or to reference with Reference to its removal. And with reference to the removal of sin, he condemned sin. He condemned sin, capital S-I-N, not any human beings. He condemned sin in the flesh, the flesh of Jesus Christ, in order that the rectitude required by the law, or the righteousness here meaning rectitude, required by the law would be fulfilled This is the point I want to make today. In order that the righteousness required by the law would be fulfilled, plerao is the word here, fulfilled in us. That is, in those who comport themselves in this body, speaking of this body, in a manner not determined by the flesh, but by the spirit. What is the righteousness or the rectitude that the Torah in all of its meaning, in all of its vast arena, what does the law say? Jesus said that all the law, all the prophets hang 
on this peg that you will love your neighbor as yourself, which in turn is rooted in loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and and strength. The righteousness that the Torah requires of man but can't deliver, God did. And as we walk by the Spirit, it means we choose to have our lives determined and controlled by the Spirit of the crucified and risen Christ, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Then what does he do? He pours out the love of God, the love for God and the love of God in our hearts. And that also includes the love of God that we should have for our neighbor poured out in our hearts. Walking by means of the Spirit or walking under the determining, directing power of the Holy Spirit, he produces in us the righteousness that the law required, which is love. Total love for God and love for our neighbor as Christ loves us. So to walk here is the verb peripateo. Peripateo is another very important word. P-E-R-I-P-A-T-E-O. It kind of reminds me of the Aborigines in Australia who have this thing called the walkabout. They leave their everyday lives and they go into the desert and the wilderness. They return to their roots, as it were, and they go into the total primitive livingness that they had once before. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing called a walkabout. And this literally means about to walk, walk about. Our walkabout in this life, in this age, is a temporary walkabout that we end up being ushered into heaven at the end of it. To walk about in or by the Spirit is to have then our walkabout in but not of this world And that means to customarily act, live, behave, whatever you want to call it, have an ethical living determined by the spirit of Christ and not by the adverse power of the flesh. And that adverse power of the flesh isn't just a sexual lust. It's the lust or the desire to be above others, which is the whole problem in Rome with the saints in their group biases and the Gentiles against the Jews, and the Jewish Christians against the Gentile Christians for various reasons that we've studied. The deepest desire of the flesh is for prestige and for, really, superiority over others. And there is also the desire for flesh. There's this, another thing, one thing I've recently said is, and I said this to Pam, and she was kind of like, Uh, quizzical about it, but I said to her, I would rather be insane than inane. Inane means to just be kind of like the Christmas spirit, you know, all the songs that aren't about Jesus Christ. That's inane. Uh, it, it means that there's no, no drama in a, in a show. It's just an inane formula and you just watch it. I'd rather be insane than inane. In fact, inanity is evil. Heaven isn't going to be inane, commonplace. Everything is just normal. And, and people say family's the greatest thing. Family's the greatest thing. Family is the greatest thing. Family is the greatest thing. That's nonsense and idolatry. I'll tell you what the greatest thing is. You're listening to it right now. The faithfulness of Jesus Christ and our participation in it. Otherwise, family is just an idol. And it's inane. Inanity 
is evil. The gospel isn't an inane, commonplace message. It's insane. Paul said, I'm a little mad, I'm a little insane, but bear with me in my insanity, he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, because this gospel is so phenomenal, so wonderful, so awesome, so out of this world that the preachers of it are sometimes considered to be a little that way too. So, you heard it here today, in my view, inanity is evil. And so someone will say, what someone might say, oh, that's nice. I would say, no, it's evil. So I'm the Grinch. I'm not here to steal away Christmas, though. I'm here to steal away the inanity that goes around it and that steals from the glorious, phenomenal, spectacular message of it. And so... To have our walkabout in this world, to have it determined by the Spirit of Christ and not the adverse power of the flesh, capitalize it, if you will, as IDF, three caps, conduct our lives. And I always thought of this, what does walk mean? It means to conduct your lives. But I always was a little nervous about that and not satisfied with that. In fact, that's kind of an inane Translation, conduct our lives or conduct ourselves isn't satisfactory because to conduct itself means to direct. And so I don't first direct my life. I opt for the spirit to direct my life. So really walking by the spirit is opting to choose or choosing or determining. And we do determine to be determined by another to be directed by another, to agree with Jeremiah 10, 23, that the way of a man is not in himself. It is not in man to direct his own steps. So we walk by the Spirit. Now that, once you understand that, then yes, you can conduct your lives. Paul said to the men in Corinth who weren't acting like men, he said, act like men. You say, well, how does a man act? Well, how did Jesus act? That's how a man acts. Act like men. That means don't melt in the first warm breeze like a snowflake. Act like men. If you're men, act like men. Or he could say act like human beings. Human beings, in God's view, do determine their course in one sense, but only as they are determined by the Spirit. So conduct our lives, we has to be translated advisedly. It does mean to direct, whereas it is the spirit of Jesus Christ in Philippians 1.19 who directs our lives. However, in the obedience of faith, we who walk under the direction and control of the spirit do act in what the spirit calls self-control. And so we literally are determining within ourselves many things, and it seems like we're doing it ourselves, but it's only as the Spirit is determining our life. Here's an example. Daniel, he's captive in Shinar, the capital of Babylon. He is given a menu by Nebuchadnezzar to eat a certain way, because to eat that way would, to, would be to ingratiate yourselves with your captors, to suffer from a kind of Stockholm syndrome. Daniel determined, it says in his own heart, not to eat of the king's menu. 
So he went to the head eunuch, who was the one who had control over all of the captives from Jerusalem, and he said, listen, let us eat a certain other kind of diet that complies with our God. And he did. And after many weeks, Daniel and those who chose not to eat of the king's menu appeared stronger and more robust, and the king thought, they're awesome, but he never knew that he wasn't partaking of the king's menu. By that I mean, I'm speaking metaphorically, we choose not to be conformed to this age by being determined by the God of this age who blinds the minds. The God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4 is the prince of the rebellious airborne spirits. We are in a flat line standing against an airborne core of invisible demon spirits, rebellious spirits who promote ideologies and direct the performance of what are called the sons of disobedience. Romans 8, 4 then is speaking of praxis. Peripateo speaks of praxis. This is actually what we call ethics in a way, although again, advisedly, because ethics itself is an inane term, and inanity, in my insane opinion, is evil. You say, how can you say that? Picture yourself in heaven. You tell me if there's anything inane or commonplace in heaven. When Paul said there's unspeakable things up there that you can't talk about. You tell me if there's anything inane in heaven. Why is there nothing inane in heaven? Inane. Just simply nice. Because inanity is evil. Now, take all this advisedly now. Don't quote me as if that's my message today. It isn't. Praxis, by definition, is a consistent, customary carrying out of the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is a participation of the liberated will with the faithfulness of Christ in the power of the Spirit. I'm going to say that again because actually it's a formal definition. Praxis is participation of the liberated human will with the faithfulness of Christ in the power of and under the direction of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit we're talking about, who proceeded eternally from the Father and the Son by eternal spiration and who was sent on a divine mission by God into our hearts, crying the same cry that Jesus cried to the Father under his maximum adversity, Abba! Galatians 4, 6, Romans 8, 14 and 15. Theologically speaking, then, praxis is found at the juncture of Christology and pneumatology. Where is our walk? Where is the conduct of our lives? It's right at the juncture of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Christology and pneumatology. It's right at the juncture of two divine missions, the mission of the Son and the mission of the Spirit. In fact, it is moving through this life in the course of this clashing juncture of the aeons under the influence of the divine missions. To walk in the spirit is to move in this life in the course of this clashing clashing juncture of the ages under the influence of the divine missions. It is, in fact, as Colonel Theme used to teach properly, rightly, and profoundly, an absolutely supernatural living 
that requires a supernatural means for its execution. That's a good definition. Lonergan's word treasury, once again, he says it's an absolutely supernatural living, faith, hope, and love, that advances toward an absolutely supernatural goal, which Paul calls the prize of the mark of the prize, under the action of divine grace. And so this Christian spiritual life, as we have been taught in the past, and accurately, this Christian spiritual life that we have been taught in the past is a supernatural life that requires a supernatural means of execution. And we may rightly call it, as I've coined it also, a higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus under the control of the Spirit. Using the word control advisedly because he only controls a liberated will. So, believers are the ones who can grieve the Spirit. Believers are the ones who can quench or squelch the Spirit. Believers are the ones who can walk in the Spirit. Praxis. So again, we're talking about a divinely determined life. And we're going to move into the fourth gear here. We're talking about a divinely determined, and by determined I mean directed, controlled, a divinely determined. Remember, Jesus Christ is Lord here and everywhere. He's Lord everywhere. He's Lord of the living and the dead. He's Lord everywhere. We're talking about a divinely directed or controlled life in conjunction with our rectification by Christ's faithfulness. In other words, God has determined, in fact, God has actually put out a mandate and a decree that those who are justified and who are being rectified or set right on the basis of his son's faithful death live their lives in a participation with his son's fidelity, his son's own faithfulness. This, again, is called the obedience of faith. In a way, it it answers the question, What is Romans? What's the goal of Romans? To bring about the obedience of faith. Faith as participation. And so, we are in this world, but not of it. The obedience of faith involves an ethic. You can call it that, maybe. But it's got to be determined by Christ. It's an ethic that's Christocentric and spirit-engendered. It's the ongoing effect of God's instauration of the cosmos or his transformation of the cosmos through crucifixion and resurrection. That's what justification is. Our justification is our instauration explained to be explained in the next 40 years. I have been crucified with Christ. And so... We are to perceive and understand that we have been crucified with Christ first of all and above all. Crucified with Christ first of all and above all. You died. And your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That's a done deal. Because your glorification is a done deal, says Romans 8.30. So, we may paraphrase Paul in Galatians 2.20 in anticipation of Galatians, perhaps. I have been crucified with Christ in such a way that this crucifixion keeps having a determining influence on me. 
So much so that even as I can say that nevertheless I live, I can also say with more emphasis that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I'm paraphrasing Galatians. You see, ever since God was pleased to apocalypse his son in Paul, that's a better translation than to Paul, incidentally, and I'll show you why later. Ever since God chose to apocalyptically reveal himself, his son, in Paul, that means where God, influ- where God apocalypsed his son was right in Paul's life while Paul was still zealot, a zealot for the law and killing people in his zealotry. That's where God apocalypsed Paul. He, his son invaded the life of Paul. He invaded what was a strong man and spoiled the strong man of his goods. So now he says, I'm crucified with Christ. I got no goods. He spoiled me of my goods. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm not running around trying to obey the mandates of the law that came without even God being present and by the hand of angels through a mediator Moses in order to undermine God's grace. I don't live that way. I don't frustrate the grace of God because if I'm doing that and trying to get rectified in my life together through the works of the law, then Christ died for no reason at all. Still paraphrasing Galatians 2, 20, 21. You see, ever since God was pleased to apocalypse his son in Paul's life during Paul's rebellion, The Paul who was once determined by zealotry under the law, the law that was hijacked by sin, incidentally. The Holy Spirit can't be hijacked by sin. The law was hijacked by sin. You can't hijack the Holy Spirit. The law was hijacked. To be under the law is to be under a curse. To be under any kind of a law which demands human action for divine justification is to be under a curse, spinning your wheels, stuck in the moment of the evil age while you sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Inanely. I'd rather be insane than inane. That doesn't mean I want to go insane, Lord. Please don't let, please don't let me go insane in the classical medical definition of it. But this is called a supernatural livingness. Begins with co-crucifixion. Paul, who was once determined, his whole life was determined by zealotry under the law. Where did that get him? When God apocalypsed his son in Paul, what was Paul thinking? It says he was breathing out murder. He was breathing it from the innermost part of his being. He was breathing out the slaughtering of God's own people, the church. While he was determined and controlled and directed by the law. The law works anger. The law works wrath, not in God, but in man. How many people are mad because other people are inferior to me because of my behavior, because of my political ideology, which is superior to theirs? How many people live in that? That's the 
desire of the flesh. There's people battling. Two ideologies are battling, but it's one cosmos. It's the same world. Someone will say, well, I want to move out west. I want to move to the Rockies. It's the same world. You're the same you. The Rockies won't transform you, and nothing you smoke in the Rockies will transform you unless it transforms you downward. It's the world. It's the same world. Ideology one versus ideology two. Same world, same cosmos, same disobedience, same prince of the power of airborne spirits directing your livingness and your pride. So, Romans is sent to demolish it. In closing then, Paul's life once determined under the law, hijacked by sin, leading to death, the death of other people, thank you, by his hand, was replaced by the Paul who was determined by Jesus Christ, the crucified one whom God raised from the dead. That's a transformation. And so, only after testifying of his own instauration or inclusion in the crucifixion of Christ. And that does work into a daily experience. All of my life, I now relate to the cross of Christ. And during my most adverse moments, I'm identifying with my crucified Lord. So that in the triumphal moments that come, inevitably, as he grants victory in every adversity... I identify with the risen Christ, but I'm still identifying with the crucified Christ whom God raised from the dead. That's where I gain my sanity. And if that's insanity, then I'd rather be insane than inane. So then, I don't frustrate, he said. Only after testifying of his instauration, did Paul add, and the life that I now live. Yeah, we're living a life here. The life that I now live would be inane and commonplace if it weren't for the fact that I live by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God. And to that he added, I don't frustrate the grace of God because if rectification comes by observance of the commandments of the law, then Christ died for no reason at all. Please note in closing that Christ's death is set in diametric opposition to the works of the law as a rectifying power. Moreover, we have seen that our own human believing is also not the means of justification. It is over and against the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. When Paul said that to, to his Jewish Christian friend Peter, who was way off and not living according to the gospel, the truth of the gospel, in Galatians 2, 11 to 14, he then said, we Jews, we know, we've come to believe in Jesus Christ. And then he said, and you, I'm paraphrasing, in order to comply with the reality that we have been justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We believed in Jesus Christ in order to comply with the fact that we were justified by Jesus Christ's faithfulness. And Peter knew this, 
Because in, in the Jerusalem conference, when James was way off the mark and wanting people to follow just a few rules of the Jews, like not eating animals that are strangled or eating animals that split the hoof and don't eat venison or whatever. Yes, James, yes, James, the one who wrote the book called James, was off the mark. Peter stood up and he said, we Jews know that we will be justified just like these Gentiles will be by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say through faith. He said by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is equivalent to the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ, which saves and justifies, which is equivalent to the death of Jesus Christ or the faithful death of Jesus Christ that he died in obedience to the Father's saving will. Being justified then without anything to do with our believing, we believe in Jesus Christ to comply with the fact that we've been justified by his faithfulness. That's the truth of the gospel. And so, I don't add, he said, I don't frustrate the grace of God. Please note again in closing that Christ's death is set in opposition to the works of the law as a rectifying power. In some crucial places in Paul, however, as we're going to learn next, faith is actually shorthand for the faithful death of Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified. Listen, if faith means Christ, then here's, here's a question for you. What does Romans 5.1 say then when it says being justified by faith? Is it, or we're justified by our perception, our faith perception? No, our faith perception lets us know that we're justified. Are we justified by our participation? Faith is participation? No, we're justified by Christ's faithful death. That's what it means to be justified by faith. And the justified one, justified already by the faithful death of Christ, shall live by faith. Participation in Messiah's fidelity. You're already justified by someone else's faithfulness. Now you get to live by faith that complies with that fact. Do you realize how many, I don't even want to say how many Christians are living not according to the truth of the gospel? Because their whole basis for their position in union with Christ is their believing, they think. And so they're not knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. They're knowing I believed in Jesus. Paul said again, you know, Peter, we believed in Jesus Christ. Yes, we did. But that was only to comply with the fact that we were justified by Jesus Christ's faithful death. His obedience to the extent of death. That's why Romans 5, 9 goes on. That doesn't, it doesn't say, oh, I said you're justified by faith, but I, uh, over here I think I'll say you're justified by his blood. You're justified by faith, your personal believing, but no, I didn't mean that. I meant you're justified by Jesus Christ's blood, which he does say explicitly in Romans 5, 9. Is he saying two different things? No, faith in Romans 5, 1 means Christ's faithful death, and blood, Christ's blood, means Christ's faithful death. So it's uniform throughout all the writings of the scripture that Christ's faithful death is what rectifies and justifies the whole universe of being, including the world of human beings. 
And so when God apocalypses his son right in our lives, and he's going to do it right in the midst of people's inane Christian lives, he's going to shake up Christian lives. Because the Christian life that they call the Christian life is nothing but an inane kind of nicety that has nothing whatever to do with a co-crucified livingness in Christ Jesus. And so, he invades our lives, shakes them up. I know I've gone too long today, but it's been a while. We'll be here Wednesday, coming up. Not Thursday, we're easing back in. This has some interpretive clout, therefore. When it comes to Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, Christ's faithful death, let us enjoy peace with God. You groups that are fighting each other, you've been justified by the same faithful death, not by works of the law so you can compete and provoke each other. You've been justified by Christ's faithful death. You guys have been justified by Christ's faithful death. You Catholics have been justified by Christ's faithful death. You Baptists have been justified by Christ's faithful death. You Pentecostals and Charismatics, you've been justified by Christ's faithful death. So let's enjoy peace and harmony together that we have with God. Why not? If Why are you against each other when God is for us all and gave his son freely for us all? That's the whole point that Paul is talking about here. And that's why he says, let us enjoy our peace with God. Why? Because we already have that peace with God in Romans 5.11. The reconciliation that God worked out when God reconciled the world to himself in Christ's death and resurrection. We have already received that reconciliation the new messianic age that came with Jesus Christ for all the cosmos comes with us effectively the moment God wakes us up and elicits this faith. When he elicits this faith, it's a faith that complies with the fact that we are justified by Christ's faithful death. When Christ came into the world from outside, a certain kind of faith came with him. That's the faith we live by. And so Abraham's faith... In Romans 4 and Galatians 3 isn't a model of our faith. It's a very rough analogy to the faith that would come in with the resurrection of Jesus Christ by which we live. In which one day all the nations will live by this obedience to faith. But right now those of us who have faith awakened in us by the gospel. We are living it as a kind of 13 colonies of what will one day be 50 states. A proleptic church ethic thank you father for this opportunity we pray that you'll rivet home this truth that faith is a perceptiveness that faith is a means of participation and that faith works together with hope and love and an absolutely supernatural living that goes toward a supernatural goal under your grace your pure unadulterated grace grant us father that we are able to clearly and Evidently, make decisions, clearly make decisions to be determined by the spirit of grace and not by the spirit of human deserving. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.